I had to explain to this person that I had a Dharma talk in about five minutes in order to get off the phone. Anyway, okay. So this evening, we're going to try to talk about relaxation. An awful lot of media and a lot of information out there big industries based on trying to help people to relax. So there are many, of course, conventional concepts of what relaxation is, what that feels like, what that is. And of course, this evening we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about the relaxation of inner freedom, the relaxation that comes out of um, the training that you're doing. Oftentimes, conventional relaxation, if one investigates it, and this isn't a criticism of a lot of the activities that uh, people pursue, because I pursue some of those same activities, and I don't have a problem with that. Whether it's, it might be TV, or it could be vacations, it could be all sorts of kind of fun things to do, sports, you know, exercise, Nothing wrong with those activities. They, they, they can bring a lot of joy. But more the problem is, is, is that they often get in some ways misused because a lot of these activities are designed, um, at least the way people often use them, is, is to distract themselves. Is they, they function as a way to escape, you know, to escape ourselves, to escape um, our minds. Many of them are people often describe with virtue that they're mindless activities. And many of them are mindless activities. A lot of TV watching is actually quite mindless. Um, But obviously, a lot of these things are designed to get away from suffering, to the bottom line. And that people live a very, very stressful... I live in the city and I talk to people day in and day out. It's obvious that even if you're a practitioner, you're subject to a great deal of stress in your life. Even if you're fully committed to awareness practice, you're doing everything we're telling you to do. There's still a great deal of stress and a lot of difficulties and challenges that we face uh, on this planet. So the tendency or the... um, There's a strong desire to try to get away from that suffering. There are lots and lots of different strategies... Unfortunately, really none of the strategies actually work you know, in a reliable way. In other words, it's very difficult to find lasting refuge in any of these activities because they're impermanent. And also when, when we're attached to them in a way um, where we're using them or misusing them to, to get away from ourselves, to get away from our boredom or to get away from our loneliness or to get away from tension uh, and to escape that, well, unfortunately, the consequences is it, it tends to reinforce. It reinforces a lot of fear in us. It, it generates a sense of insecurity. We don't develop a certain kind of inner confidence, um, an inner confidence that comes out of being able to respond to the conditions in our life and actually learn something from the conditions in our life. 
and learn to relate to them in a way where uh, we actually are, are liberated within the conditions in which we find ourselves. We get dependent on escaping and moving away. And so the relaxation that one often experiences in these activities is quite impermanent. Oftentimes it's kind of superficial, um, doesn't last, and sometimes it even leaves us with this greater sense of insecurity and tension afterwards. So what we're, what we're doing here, working as hard as we are, facing the challenges within the body and facing the challenges with the mind, is we're, we're looking at uh, something much more profound and much deeper. And it is a process of relaxation. I mean, so much of what we've been emphasizing is putting in your time and, and you know, try, making an effort to pay attention and, and coming back to the breath even if you don't feel like it. Um, so there's, there's some effort in that. But also the attitude that we want to cultivate in practice, it's, it's a strange effort because we're also, we're also encouraging relaxation and not, not trying to reinforce the sense of efforting in order to achieve or to get somewhere or to become somebody that you're not. And that's what's challenging about Dharma practice. It kind of goes up against what we've, what we've been taught. It goes up against our conditioning. The Buddha talked about the fact that practicing the Dharma is very much like swimming upstream. You know, this, the stream of wanting to escape one's suffering and to push things away, uh, that's downstream. You know, a lot of the planet is very deeply involved in that. And so what we're trying to do is, is face things and to take a look at ourselves and to see if, if it's really necessary to run away from our suffering or is there another way of relating to it? Is there another way of living our life um, where, we're, where, where we're up to the challenging and changing conditions of our life, where we discover freedom within ourselves, the freedom of relaxation, but we also become a resource to others. The work that you're doing here is not really just about just yourself. But it's about the world that we're living in and, and making it a better place and becoming um, a resource for others. Uh, when we're overwhelmed or we're engaged in trying to move away from our suffering, when we don't know ourselves really well, um, in terms of us being able to help or, or be a refuge for others, it's very limited because we're basically doing the same thing that they're doing. So it's, we're not so reliable that way. So obviously we're practicing not just for ourselves, but for others. It's always important to realize that. So the kind of inner freedom that comes out of practice, very deep, it has everything to do with liberation from suffering. It has everything to do with unconditional freedom, not dependent on a particular set of conditions coming together. You know, when, we, when our happiness or peace depends solely on conditions in our life, and this isn't meant to devalue conditions in our life, they're important, but when our happiness relies solely on those conditions, um, it's a very limited place to be. It's a very frightening place to be, actually. And a lot of our fear comes from that place of not feeling whole or always looking outside of ourselves happiness. 
causes a great deal of suffering for us. So this swimming upstream, what does it mean? Well, it's tough work, for one thing. Absolutely. It's tough work. It's in the trenches. We're really in the trenches in many ways, especially early phase of the retreat. Uh, Sometimes there's not so much light or um, not necessarily a lot of bliss. Uh, Or even sometimes it's, it's kind of joyless in a way sometimes. Um, because you know, one is sitting with a lot of inner restlessness and a lot of the hindrances like dullness or fantasy or wandering mind. But where it's going to go is, and where the freedom of Dharma practice takes us, is this process of letting go in a very profound way, in a very gradual way, in a very clear way, in a way that we can see for ourselves. There's this letting go process where we're letting go of our habitual conditioning that limits us. All of us, you know, our, our, all our paths are different. They unfold in different ways. We have all different karma, different history, different challenges that we face. But Dharma practice is universal in the sense that as we move towards freedom, that's what the process is. It's letting go of this habitual conditioning that has conditioned us to react. The things that our life condition us, we're conditioned to react to uh, people, situations, in a certain way. And, and ironically, when the Buddha talks about this conditioning, you know, it's so applicable to us. You know, our culture and our society is so different than the world that he lived in. But yet, you know, when he talks about conditioning and he talks about three, three expressions, he called them the torments of heart, the source of our suffering, these torments of heart, are very much present in our contemporary world. And, and the tor- three torments of heart or these habitual conditioned reactions that we have to things is, of course, greed, hatred, or aversion, and delusion or confusion in the mind. And these torments of heart we're inevitably going to encounter, all of us if we're paying attention to our experience, they're unavoidable because they're the source of our discontent. Just like it's unavoidable to meet your discontent when you sit down. It's not, you know, I don't have to tell you now, you've been here for a while, but it, it, the mind is often in a state of discontent. That's, that's kind of how we're living a lot of the time. And to be free of that, we have to learn how to work with that fact. There's no magic Meditation is definitely not a magic pill. There's no, no such thing. that We could just take something or something could happen in two days or three days where all our problems are solved. It doesn't work that way. The mind is too deeply conditioned to do things that bring it suffering. And what we're trying to do is undo that. We're trying to open up to something new and different, something that we haven't been doing up to this point or up to the point where we begin to practice and cultivate awareness. So what we're asking ourselves to do is something profoundly radical. Very, very different. Very, very different than the kinds of things that we've learned. And the one thing that we haven't learned to do on this planet, Larry talked, 
a great deal about different kinds of intelligence, you know, how bright we are and how, how much we have achieved. What we have not accomplished is this of capacity to begin to take a look at our experience in a direct and open-hearted way so that we can learn and understand what the nature of our suffering is. It's really almost that simple. We haven't really developed that ability to do that. We don't actually understand why we suffer. You know, we, we can have all the money, we can have all the success, you know, we can live in a privileged society, and yet the privileged few that have that karma, whatever it is, suffer sometimes the most. You know, suffer sometimes the most. You know, coming back from Burma, you know, I got a chance to really witness a lot of poverty. And it's not like you have to go 20,000 miles to, to witness that. You can witness it here in America. But you know, what, was profound, what was profoundly moving to me was just to see that people still could experience joy. You know, in an impossible, what I would describe as an impossible situation, that's how I would describe it, what people are living in, the average person. And yet there was still a lot of joy, there was a lot of love, and there was a sense of connectedness you know, with each other, oftentimes a real helpful energy. And I'm not idealizing what I saw. I don't think I am anyways, um, because I know it's more complex than that, that's for sure. But those qualities were there. It's undeniable that those qualities were there. So you know, it's kind of pointing to the fact that conditions aren't going to do it for us. We have to do it. We have to find it within ourselves. You know, we, have to, we have to solve this dilemma ourselves, which is... Uh, Understanding the nature of our suffering, how it originates, you know, what gives cause to discontent in the mind, and what brings freedom, liberation. Not only do we need to taste liberation for ourselves, we also have to understand how we got there. You know, we actually have to see the path. To trust it, we have to see it. You know? And in seeing it, it's very inspiring because it develop a lot of confidence in the path as we go along. And if you practice for longer and you continue on, whether it's this path or any path of awareness, confidence will come as, you begin, as we begin to see more clearly how this liberation comes about. When we begin to taste that freedom and we actually see, oh yeah, the mind is acting with some wisdom now. The mind is, is responding to suffering with some compassion rather than judging it or having all sorts of ideas about how it's supposed to be or um, clinging on to momentary pleasant experiences, hoping that they're going to bring us something lasting. Well, of course, those kind of reactions of the judging and clinging and pushing away and holding on and grasping and looking outside of yourself for something else, that, of course, creates tremendous tension in a moment-to-moment way in our minds. And, of course, that's a lot of times what the mind is actually engaged in. So when we talk about relaxation and practice, we're really talking about this letting go. Uh, we're letting go of our suffering. We're not accumulating knowledge. We're not accumulating, we're not becoming experts, um, know-it-alls, hotshots, important people, somebody to look up to. We're not becoming that. We're getting humbled, Hopefully by what we encounter you know, over and over again. Uh, 
honestly, I don't think I can go through a retreat without getting a little notch knocked out of me in some way, just saying, oh, yeah, I'm not done with that. You know, I still have a little bit more to do on that piece. And for me, that's not, I don't find that humiliating. To me, I'm, I'm glad, you know, because I know I don't want to carry that. It's unnecessary. It's extra. And so in some ways, the practice is this letting go of a burden. Not in some way. It is that. Letting go of this burden, this huge thing that we're carrying around with us, which is ignorance. We're not understanding the nature of our suffering. And so this relaxation process is really a process of understanding. You know, Larry talks a lot, and I've kind of borrowed it from him, take my own little take on it, but Larry talks a lot about self-knowing and the liberating quality of self-knowing. And that's, of course, what we're doing right now, is we're getting to know ourselves in a moment-to-moment way. And it's not always good news. It's not always bad news. It's kind of a mixed bag along the way. But this process of self-knowing, um, it's necessary. You know, it's what liberates us. The better we get to know ourselves, the freer we are. The freer we are. The more unconscious we are, the more limited we are. The more unconscious we are, the more we're subject to our conditioning. And the more subject we are to our conditioning, the more we live in fear. Because there's no freedom in that. There's no sense of finding a refuge, or finding a balance, because conditions in, on this planet, conditions in our life are constantly changing. And, we're in, and if we're subject to those conditions through this conditioned way of behaving and reacting, that leaves us very, very vulnerable to the conditions that we live in. And all of us are very vulnerable to the conditions, even people who have been practicing for a long time. When conditions in our life change or when something difficult comes up, it's practice. It's practice. Uh, you know, I, there's some things, no matter how hard you practice, they still can be pretty tough. There's a lot of things thrown up. And the Buddha talked a lot about human existence. And he said it, it, it is definitely challenging. But it also offers tremendous potential. It offers the, the potential for liberation. And that liberation comes through meeting those challenges. You know, through seeing clearly the nature of our suffering through a very deep investigative process, we discover liberation. But oftentimes, we wouldn't even investigate unless it was really right in our face. If we were happy, and we were really feeling peaceful, most of us would not put us through this, sitting with all that you have to sit, sit with. You know, it's hard work. But often what motivates us is that we do know that. We know something about ourselves. We know we're not totally happy all the time, at minimum. And so we want to do something about that. And we also, everybody here, I think, understands that you can't just always escape it. You can't just distract yourself and think that it's going to go away. And so we're, we're, we're along the way. You know, we're definitely on that path of self-knowing. We know a lot about ourselves already, and that's useful, and you have to just continue that process.
So what I'd like to talk about is just different aspects um, that you may have even noticed in your own practice, even up just in the last couple of days. And I know many of you have been practicing for a while, so um, you don't want to sound like this is brand new to everybody out there, because it isn't. But there are quite a few people where this is the first retreat. And the first retreat genuinely is one of the most memorable retreats. I still remember my first retreat, and that was... I'm embarrassed to say, 33 years ago that I did my first Vipassana retreat. You would think I'd be further along (laughs) than I am. So I don't say that to inspire you. (laughs) Maybe, I mean, some of us are very slow. I'm quite sure I fit in that category. Um, But different aspects of relaxation in the practice, and, and one of them is one that we've been engaging in thus far, um, which is valuable, what we're doing right now with this shamatha practice, you know, this concentration practice. It's valuable, extremely valuable. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it the last couple of days. And so I'm going to say something about the value of it. But I also do want to mention it is also limited. Okay, it's also limited. Um, it... it this concentration practice, there's a lot of great things that come out of it. This shamatha practice is the development of serenity or calm, and oftentimes it's developed through focusing on one particular object so that the mind gets, begin, the attention begins to stabilize, it begins to settle, or in a sense almost get absorbed at deep levels. It can get absorbed in the object itself. The mind gets very unified. Um, so... It's, it leads to a great deal of serenity and joy and inner contentment. Okay, a lot of faith and confidence can come out of practice when the mind gets settled and it gets concentrated. Um, and one of its values, its prime value, is that it, it can help create a foundation to then begin to open up and investigate and do the Vipassana training. You know, and that's where we're going to be going starting tomorrow, is moving into the Vipassana practice. A lot of really wonderful things, as I mentioned, come out of samadhi practice, or concentration or shamatha practice. Some of the things that come out of it is that feeling of inner contentment and joy, a realization that happiness and peace can be found within. That's very important. That was very important to me when I first began to practice, was that as I got concentrated, I really had that sense um, of kind of inner peace, the sense that, oh, yeah, that there's so much in here that, that I can actually train myself. Uh, to to not be thrown around so much or, or train myself and, and taste that sense of inner freedom or um, a lot of lightness in the body um, and, a, and, and a sense a lot of light in one's environment. You know, just this, this sense of well-being that can come out of serenity practice or um, shamatha training. It's very helpful to, to see that. But as the Buddha discovered in his own practice, and in many ways, he discovered it the hard way. He discovered he didn't have somebody telling him that this was a limited practice. In fact, the only practices that were really offered to him were shamatha practices, because that's all that his teachers knew. Um, so, but what he discovered was is that, and he certainly experienced uh, much stronger states of concentration than I ever remotely could even taste uh, in my own practice. Um, but uh, he cert- he very, very high stages and considered the highest stages 
of shamatha that one can experience uh, with tremendous absorption states and, and lots of really wonderful, wonderful things that come out of that. But he also recognized he had the tenacity and wisdom and just all the qualities that you need to recognize that it wasn't liberation, that this wasn't unconditional freedom, that this actually was conditional happiness, a conditional peace. In other words, it depended on conditions coming together, whether it was conditions in the environment or conditions in the mind, and that it was an impermanent state of mind. So because it was impermanent, it was inherently not going to bring lasting peace or unconditional peace. And so what the Buddha did was he opened his awareness up. He used the shamatha practice as a springboard to begin to investigate life as it is. I mean, think about that just sitting down and just deciding he was just going to take a look at things as they arise from moment to moment to see what he could learn. I mean, it's such a powerful thing to do without any guidance, you know, without a framework. That's, of course, what we're doing. I mean, we have more support. We have retreat centers and uh, teachers that maybe encourage it. Um, and, and other people practicing with us, but ultimately that's what we're doing. Each one of us is going to be, and we're taking a look at our experience in a very direct way, see what we can learn from that experience, see what is bringing us suffering, what, what's the source of this discontent. First of all, is there discontent in the mind? Maybe you're not so convinced of that. I think you are, that there is some discontent. But then it's, it's understanding the nature of that. And in order to begin to investigate it, one has to get to a place where it's not so overwhelming. You know, one can really know that there's unhappiness, dissatisfaction, discontent, suffering in the mind. But knowing that isn't enough. We need the tools. We need the capacity. We need to develop the capacity to begin to investigate and look at what is arising in a useful way, in a way that does lead to freedom and not just being overwhelmed. And, of course, that's what the Vipassana training is, is about. It's, a, it's learning to take, care, take a look at your experience, learning to hold what arises in the here and now with greater inner spaciousness, with less reactivity, with more clarity, so that we can begin to see the nature of this body or the nature of the mind or the nature of the environment of the world that we're living in uh, without, being so, uh, without being pushed around by it without being so subject to all the changing conditions that we, that we encounter. Now, fortunately, what the Buddha discovered, and, and this is something that we're discovering too, maybe you've already discovered this, is that we have the tools already. We don't need to look outside of ourselves for the tools to do this kind of investigative process or to begin to take a look at what's arising in the present, what's arising in the here and now, to investigate that in a deep way. Everybody in this room has the tools, has the power within them. And that's true for everybody outside of this room also. Because there's an innate quality of mind. There's innate qualities within us as us human beings. Different powers that we have that are there, and they're 
generally speaking, just simply undeveloped within us. It's not that somebody else is special and we're not. It's not that the Buddha was special. In fact, there's a big point to make with the Buddha is that you know, he was in a lot of delusion and a lot of confusion early in his life. You know, he didn't really know or understand the nature of suffering himself. You know, and he woke up. And even when he woke up to suffering, basically he still had to understand it in a very arduous journey in order to understand that. Same thing as us. It's not any different. And he didn't get liberated from some, somebody or from somebody outside of himself. He just cultivated certain qualities within him. He discovered them and then nurtured them. And that's just what we're doing here. And the key, you know, the, the key quality that we're emphasize over and over again within this particular tradition. And to me, it's a, why we emphasize it so much is because it's very reliable, very much there. It's not something that you have to work for 20 years in order to experience. It's not that some people have it and some people don't. And that, of course, is the power of mindfulness. Very, very simple. As Larry mentioned, can be easily overlooked or never even seen or known. It's so simple. That very simple form of intelligence that all of us have, this power of mindfulness, it's the key. It's the, it's the door out. It's the door through. It's the door to understanding our suffering. It's the door through which we'll liberate ourselves also. Mindfulness is simply silent attention to whatever's arising in the here and now. Silent attention to whatever's arising in the here and now. Silent meaning different things. Silent meaning non-judging. Doesn't say an experience is good or bad doesn't place a value judgment on it. There aren't the shoulds and shouldn'ts. And this particular form of intelligence doesn't distinguish good or bad in that sense. Pain is not considered bad. It's not experienced bad through the field of mindfulness. Pleasure is not experienced as something good, something to hold on to, something to cherish. It simply just knows pleasure for what it is. It simply knows pain for what it is. Pain, pleasure, arising phenomena, expressing themselves in very different ways, different characteristics, different painful experiences have different characteristics, different pleasure, pleasant experiences have different characteristics. They last, they come through different sense doors, they last, some are more intense than others. Mindfulness just simply knows the experience as it's arising from one moment to the next. So it's free of judging, it's free of any preconceptions. That's crucial because I mentioned, you know, all our habitual conditioning that's built up. One of the main habitual conditioning conditioning that we have or carry is this concept of who we are. We carry around ideas and images about who we are and what's possible. And for most of us, we really don't know who we are. We might have an idea about it, but we don't necessarily know for sure. And we definitely don't know what our potential is. And I think everybody in this room would agree with that. 
we have to journey a little bit into the unknown in order to discover what our potential is. Mindfulness allows us that freedom to journey into the unknown because it doesn't have preconceptions. You know, it allows us actually to open up to really ordinary, really ordinary experiences and see something in it that can liberate us. That's the wonderful thing about mindfulness practice is that liberation, freedom, insight, all the things that we, of course, want can arise any moment in time, under any condition, in any experience. And there are many, many countless stories of just that happening. If we have a lot of preconceptions about who we are, what's possible, preconceptions about the self, that gets in the way. It gets in the way of learning. It gets in the way of investigating and taking a look at it on a deeper level beyond that preconception. And so there's a tremendous amount of freedom and creativity when we begin to engage in this mindfulness practice. We're tremendously creative. It frees up a lot of energy because now we're swimming upstream, but we're not engaging as fully, certainly, in this kind of habitual process of just over and over again carrying around ideas, reacting in the same way, behaving in the same way, making the same mistakes over and over again, not learning from our experience, always being somewhat puzzled, trying to figure things out, problem-solving, strategizing, planning, all the things that the thinking mind has taught us and this, again, is not to devalue the thinking mind. And that's the, that's the extreme um, in Dharma practice, is that one then puts mindfulness up here and thinking down here. And it's not really that way. Thinking can be, is valued, and we need to be able to think. But we want our thinking to be informed by mindfulness. We want thinking to be informed by our capacity to be with things as they are, rather than feeling like we have to move away from things as they are. And a lot of our thinking is designed to do that, is to avoid or to push away or to escape or to cling to some idea that this is going to be, this is going to lead to freedom and really actually it's just confusion in our mind. So mindfulness is, is when we begin to engage in a mindfulness practice, what we're doing is we're beginning to untangle and release and let go of all these habits of mind. You know, the habits of mind begin to surface, but when we begin to meet them with mindfulness, we're not reinforcing them anymore. We're seeing them. That can be discouraging, but the practice is to keep seeing them because every time we meet them, with non-judging attention or awareness, we're letting them go. We're changing that pattern. We're letting go of that habit. We're disempowering the habitual unconscious mind. We're undergoing this process of deconditioning. Deconditioning the mind. We're freeing up all that tension. Freeing up all that tension that we're kind of sitting on pushing down. Things come to the surface. Several times in the groups today, people were mentioning dreams. 
It's true for me too. Uh, how they're dreaming like crazy, you know, when they come on retreat. Uh, that the dreams are incredibly vivid, uh, wild, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff is going on, and they're remembering them too. You know, like, and that oftentimes that's not the case. I guess for these folks, is that they might dream. Well, we all probably are dreaming, but we might not remember them or they're not so vivid. And honestly, what I think is going on, and it's a theory, can't prove it, but it's likely theory, is that, you know, in, in this practice of mindfulness, you know, the unconscious material stuff that we're holding is being released, whether we know it or not, even if it doesn't seem like anything is happening. And so often, practice is like that. It really is. It's like that. It's like it doesn't seem like anything good is coming out of it. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a sec, I'm, I'm not doing exactly what I was doing before. I'm relating to the situation a little bit differently. I've, you know, I'm, I'm acting a little bit more wisely around my body, or I'm, I'm feeling a little bit more compassion towards myself or towards somebody else. You know, and you notice those things, and they don't come by themselves. They come because you've practiced, because you've been hanging out with yourself and taking a look at yourself and trying to take a look at yourself, not in this kind of, navel-gazing, you know, introspective, thinking about myself, narcissistic way, but just taking a look in a very open-hearted way, in a very non-judging, non-free of, pre- free of preconceptions, just kind of taking a look at when I sit down, what's my experience like? What's the breathing actually feel like? You might have all sorts of ideas about what the breathing is supposed to be, and if you read these yoga journals and yoga magazines and all of that, it's very easy to think that the breathing should be unfolding this way. Well, a lot of times it just doesn't. So what to do about that? Well, we can suffer in relationship to that, or we could be a bit more allowing and say, okay, the breathing is a little tight and constricted. Can I have a little bit of compassion for myself in that situation? You know, is it possible to, to, to hold it that way? But then also not to strive to have the perfect breath. It's not about having the perfect breath. It's not a breathing exercise. Larry, I'm sure, has been very clear about that. It's a mindfulness practice. So through this power of mindfulness, it opens up uh, the doors to liberation. In one very practical way, and something we'll be talking about more, Larry started talking about it last night, which is this arena of beginning to bring mindfulness to the world of relationship. And in this case, we're not necessarily talking about human beings to human being relationships, but more about our relationship to the conditions that we meet or that we encounter. And one very empowering thing that happens in meditation practice is as we begin to hang out with ourselves, take a look at ourselves, investigate the nature of suffering, understand the nature of suffering better, what we end up doing is we begin to take, it's wonderful actually to see this process unfold, is we begin to take more responsibility for our own suffering. And we take more responsibility for our own happiness. That's, that's really a healthy, good process to begin to engage in. It's not to say we haven't been damaged along the way and people haven't harmed us and none of that. It's not denying any of that. But now, things are the way they are. And so, can we work our way out of this? Can we, can we free ourselves from suffering? And we realize, if we take responsibility for our happiness, if we fully take responsibility for our happiness, things look really different. We begin to respond very differently to the world that we're living in. 
And one way of taking responsibility is to begin to take, to begin to investigate and bring the mindfulness practice into the world of reactions to things. You know, taking a look at our reactions to conditions that we meet, even in retreat here. This is something certainly you're going to want to take with you when you leave. But you know, when we start doing the Vipassana, that's a significant aspect of the practice, is to look at what happens when you look at the bulletin board and it hasn't changed. You know, and it, it's the same as it was yesterday. Does your heart sink? Do you get angry? When are they going to do something new? You know? Okay, when, you know, I'm not getting enough attention here. There's no notes for me. Uh, some of us are just waiting for an emergency to happen <laughs> just so we can get out of here. <laughs> okay, so looking at your reactions, being mindful of your reactions, it's, it's the self-knowing piece. It's a big part of the self-knowing piece. And why it's so empowering and why it's so freeing, it's, on every level it's freeing. It's, it's, it's the best thing that you can do for yourself is just to take a look at your relationship to the things that you encounter. Uh, you know, Larry and I and a lot of people in this room have been doing that for a long time. Maybe you have. And at a certain point, you can't imagine life not doing that. Because you know, there are just so many damn challenges to face. You've got to take a look at what you're doing with these conditions. Conditions in this planet are never the way we want them to be. And the older I get, the more I see that. So how am I relating to that? That makes a big difference. You know, I had a, my second floor neighbor, this uh, senior citizen moved into my, I don't know what the right word is anymore, but senior citizen moved in to a second floor apartment. We live in a third floor. We just renovated the apartment. Got it the way we wanted it, you know, reasonably so anyway. You know, not the way we wanted it, but, you know, within limits. Second floor neighbor moves in. She's a smoker. The smoke gets in our apartment. I'm allergic to smoke. Okay. That's how quickly things can change. Now, this is like a, let's say, this is high-class suffering. You know, this isn't like, I don't have anything suffering. You know, people deal with that all the time. This is like high-class Cambridge suffering. I have a smoker that moves in. I'm allergic to smoke. All of a sudden, heaven turns into hell, you know, in one day. Okay? Now, I could devote my life to hating this woman. I really could. I've thought about it, actually. <laughs> And I've had my moments. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I've had my moments. And she denies she's smoking. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> so, because her daughter owns the apartment and she, she denies to her daughter that she's a smoker. It's horrible. Um, anyway, I could devote my life to hitting her, but I don't. If anger or aversion arises, I take responsibility for that aversion. I'm not taking responsibility for her smoking. It's certainly not what I want to have happen. But I know my aversion is my aversion. There is no doubt that she is not the source of my suffering. There is no doubt about that. She's a source of unpleasant experiences. Absolutely. No doubt about it. But it's my happiness of suffering. You know, if I want to move, I get that together and do that, and that might happen. You know, in other words, you know, there's, there's options for me. It's not like I have to be there necessarily. Um, but when that aversion arises, you know, it's, it's up to me to take a look at that. Bring my awareness. Bring my practice to that. Because I know that's causing me suffering. 
And I don't want to carry that. If I'm carrying it, I need to look at it. But I need to look at it. And that's not always easy to do. It's asking a lot of us. Because a lot of saying is, no, she's the source of my suffering. And there was a big voice there saying, no, she needs to change. She needs to move out. She needs to do this. A big part of me says that sometimes. But, you know, I get in there and I start looking and investigating that. And, you know, I've talked to her. I'm not passive necessarily. I'm not resigned to it necessarily. I'm open to change, doing things that I need to do. But sometimes you do face conditions that you really can't change. Just the way it is. Can I go on for like five more minutes? He does that to me all the time. (laughs) That's what I always say too. Another example that um, happened at IMS in terms of this freedom that comes from working with reactions, and this was something I think all 100 people in our 80 or 90, whatever it was, all 80 or 90 of us were working on the same thing, which was interesting. Usually not everybody's working on the same thing, but in this case everybody was working on the same issue. It was one of these retreats that Larry and I taught uh, too many years ago, maybe 10, 8, 9, I still remember it. Um, we were sitting in this hall, actually. The hall didn't look quite like this. Like I said, it's been renovated, but we were sitting in the hall, and it was a Monday morning. You know, our retreat had started on Saturday, so we were still diligently doing this shamatha practice of watching the breath. And all of a sudden, you know, we heard a couple of trucks pull up outside these windows here, and they were parked, live parking. We could hear this radio, early morning radio. It's the 8 o'clock sit. And, you know, somebody was playing really loud rock music. And, you know, naturally people had some reactions, but that was only the appetizer. <laughs> that, was, that was just the beginning. That was like a hint of what was coming. And so, you know, eventually the radio, someone, staff person ran out and told them to shut the radio off. It took a little while. And so the radio was off. And then maybe like 45 minutes later, it felt like somebody was tearing the building apart, literally, board by board or whatever the building is made out of. There was this incredible racket and really loud construction sounds. If you've been around a construction site, you know how loud it can get, especially in the demolition phase. Um, What had happened was that they had hired a contractor to replace all the windows in this building, second floor windows in this building. In order to do that, you have to take the framing out of the, out of the walls, and I'm not sure all the technical stuff, but uh, I barely know what a hammer's like. Um, but they, so there was a lot of work to be done and a lot of really loud work to be done. And they had hired the contractor to come the following week. They weren't supposed to show up until the following Monday. Um, but the contractor had an opening in his schedule. As we know, contractors, I'm a big fan of contractors, uh, sometimes they have their own schedule. And they had this week free, so they decided to show up on Monday and replace these windows. I can't tell you how loud it was. It was just tremendous. It was just, you know, there was just this smashing and, and ripping and tremendously loud. And, of course, people were having just incredible reactions to this. I mean, here it was. You know, we were listening to birds singing and chirping. 
uh, few of them out there in the cold, but they were chirping. And, you know, just enjoying the peace. Everybody at works, you know, so many people have said they've enjoyed the silence, you know, and city life and getting away from it and all that. And all of a sudden we're in the middle of a construction site. Um, so naturally, people were starting to have strong reactions, including me. I mean, right after the sitting, I go running out there to try to find out what's going on and see if I could stop it. And then I realized there really was nothing much I could do about it. Um, so we had choices in that particular situation, right? Everybody could have got up and left, honestly, and, and just said, this is not a good environment for retreat. You know, I paid my money. You could have gone into the office and they probably would have refunded you your money. I'm not sure, but they probably would have. And, you know, you could just say, there's, this, there's no way I'm going to get samadhi here. There's no way I'm going to get vipassana practice done here. It's, it's like it's louder than where I just came from and I came here. You know, and you could have done that. And I'm sure it arose in many people's minds to do that. And then there would be another way of relating to that, which is to see, okay, I'm basically well taken care of here. You know, nobody's being harmed. Nothing, you know, you're not in danger. Uh, you're being taken care of. You know, nothing... Nothing fundamental is going on, but there is a lot of noise. And can I relate to that experience in a different way? Do I have to suffer because that construction is going on? Is the source of my suffering that noise, or is the source of my suffering my relationship to that noise? That's a really important question to ask and answer. And so we very quickly shifted the instructions from shamatha to vipassana. We said, forget it. You know, we're not going to harass people into watching the breath. Let's open things up and look at the mind because that's obviously a predominant part of the experience. And the construction lasted about two days. Uh, they did a great job in the windows, much-needed job in the windows. Uh, you know, there was a, you know, they were great guys. I got to know them pretty well, actually, over the course of two days. One of them was sticking his head, you know, took the windows out of my room. And I I remember after one sitting going up to my room, and there he was, uh, (laughs) waving to me through the window, which wasn't there anymore. Um, And, you know, the whole experience, actually, I think the experience, many people reported at the end of the retreat when we started talking and in 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 the discussions, just how much learning happened. How much learning happens? We make that assumption that it has to be a so way, such and such a way. But then when the conditions change, we have the immediate reaction that they need to be something other than they are. Um, but maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe we just need to take a look and not feed that aversive reaction, you know, that judging. And maybe we can let it go and develop more equanimity. And that's where, really where I want to end the talk, developing more equanimity in the face of conditions. And that is a very deep form of relaxation. That inner balance that isn't overwhelmed by our reactions. We might have those reactions for a very long time, but if we work with it through the mindfulness practice, we're no longer pushed around by those reactions. And again, it doesn't mean that we always have to be passive in the face of conditions. Oftentimes when we are passive, it's because we are reacting, reacting out of fear. So it's not about being passive, but it's about investigating the reactions so that we're not buying into them.
So let's just sit for a minute before we... So thank you, and uh, please keep the practice going and nurture that innate form of intelligence, mindfulness. It's worth it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.